you together as we pray. Let's pray. Lord, we do continue to praise you and to extol you in the greatness of your being and your character. As we've been having opportunities these last few weeks, Lord, surely we have been impressed to look at how different you are from us and to recognize the fact that oftentimes we do not perceive you the way that you really are. And so we need the help of your Holy Spirit today to illumine our minds, to open the spiritual eyes of our hearts, to see you as you truly are. We pray that you would use your word to bring understanding to us, that we might, even through the foolishness of preaching, that we might be able to see and understand again the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ all the more clearly. And the greatness of who you are as our God. Toward that end, we pray that you might uh, give me grace, I pray, for me as I speak these words, and grace for those who hear them, that they might hear them as the words of truth, and that they might lead us to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. In the final verse of John's first epistle, we find an often overlooked admonition. We read in 1 John 5, 21, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols. Now, the question is, was the apostle warning the audience to whom he was writing at that time about having carved or molten images in their homes that represent gods? Well, the verse that precedes that warning makes clear that John was primarily concerned with mental or heart idolatry. The context makes clear that the danger he had in mind was, was not these household figurines, but all forms of false teaching regarding, as he says in the verse previous, that the true God. He warns about idols having talked about the true God. You see, the second of the Ten Commandments given by God on Mount Sinai forbids the making of idols. Now, this command would include, obviously, the fashioning of actual representations of God out of stone or of wood or metal. And it also forbids the creating of false ideas about the true and living God in our minds. So mental and heart idolatry is an all-pervasive problem. I struggle with it. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. Everybody struggles with it. All of us are guilty of entertaining false ideas about the true God. And the reason I begin with these thoughts on idolatry today is because most modern people, or many modern people, are highly uncomfortable and would rather entirely ignore what we're going to talk about this morning regarding one of the character traits of God. As you see in your notes, we're looking at the righteous wrath of God. There is probably nothing more offensive to postmodern, politically correct, tolerance-loving people than biblical passages that describe God's holy anger. Many people today resent teaching about God who responds at times with indignation and wrath. Many people prefer to fashion God 
into their own image by dismissing God's wrath and only focusing on His love, only focusing on His mercy. And so I exhort you, as John did his readers, guard yourself from idols. Lay aside your assumptions. Lay aside your objections to this concept of God's wrath, righteous wrath. And I plead with you to view God and the way He reveals Himself in the Scriptures through the lens of the authoritative Word of God. It is not what I say. It's not what you say that's important. It's important what we find in the Scriptures. And our only hope of standing clear of the idolatry of worshiping the true and living God is to worship Him as He is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. So if you have your Bible in front of you, I would like to encourage you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, if you'll have that in front of you, we'll look at that in just a moment, 1 verse 18. I want us to begin this morning with just an overview, and I've entitled the first point, The Righteous Wrath of God Revealed. The Righteous Wrath of God Revealed. One of the inescapable elements of biblical teaching is the holy wrath of God. No matter which section of scriptures you might be reading, whether it is the uh, Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, or whether it's the historical books of the Old Testament, the wisdom literature, the Old Testament prophets, the Gospels, the New Testament epistles, or even Revelation. All of those authors of the Bible frequently and consistently mentioned the wrath of God. And I'm going to give you some samplings of those here at this moment. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, they have, God says, they have provoked me to anger by their foolish idols. In Psalm 76, verse 7, you, even you, are to be feared, said the psalmist, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Jeremiah 10, verse 10, records these words, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. If you turn to the Gospel, the third chapter of John, we read the following warning to anyone who refuses to believe in Christ. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul began his letter to the Roman church. Here you are, you should have in front of you Romans 1. This sobering statement, for the wrath of God, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, the evil of man prompts God's fury according to that passage of Scripture. And why that? Because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. If you turn over to the book of Revelation, you will read that Jesus returns someday to judge the world, and we read this, these words in Revelation 19.15. Jesus will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now, with this brief sampling from a wide cross-section of Scripture, we see that the theme of God's holy wrath 
is inextricably woven throughout the written revelation of God. You cannot escape it. Now, there are many people who find this to be highly objectionable. Times when they come across these verses of Scripture causes them to just shake their head and say, I I don't get it, I don't buy it. It's been happening for centuries, it's happening today. In the second century, there was a heretic called Marcion who taught that because he couldn't handle what what he read about God in certain parts of the Scripture, he came up with the idea that there were two gods presented in the Bible. There is Yahweh, the cruel and angry God of the Old Testament, And then he said he believed that there was the Abba, the the, the kind father of the New Testament. And Marcion went on to say in his heretical statements about many things that he held to be true, but were actually an error, he eliminated the entire Old Testament scriptures. He just said, I don't believe that is the word of God. And he kept only the ten letters of Paul's epistles, and then he got rid and only kept two-thirds of Luke's gospel for his version of the New Testament. It's just like Thomas Jefferson takes his penknife and cuts out any verses he doesn't like and leaves the rest with things they think are acceptable and somehow meet their standards of propriety. But any attempt to divide the Old Testament teaching from the New Testament teaching about God's wrath will fail, as I've just demonstrated to you. The Bible does not, nor do we, nor ought we, to attempt to conceal, ignore, or deny God's righteous wrath. According to one author, A.W. Pink, there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. That should give us ponder. We should think about that. We should sort of take a moment and let that settle into our collective conscience. God has not withheld the revelation of the fact that he is a God who does express holy anger and wrath. Now, the scriptures are not only there to record for us various mentionings of the righteous anger of God, but they also contain numerous portrayals of God with expressing his divine retribution. For example, we read, as you know, in Genesis, the early chapters there, the cursing and banishment of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And then not too many chapters later, we read of the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone. And then we read, if you continue on, uh, even before that, you read of the flood, worldwide flood in the days of Noah. The Bible also fast forwards into a future view someday of a final judgment when God will bring about the full and final retribution upon the devil and all those who do his bidding in Revelation 19. And God's wrath includes not only providential events that occurred in history in which he expressed his anger at individual people and in individual situations, but we also know that his retribution for sin will be carried out in a future manifestation of his hatred against everything that violates his moral character. Now, I just stop right there, having laid that foundation, and I want to pose the question to those of us here this morning. What is your attitude toward the teaching about God's righteous wrath? Is it possible that when you hear even the mention of it, or when you read it, that you secretly resent it in your heart? Do you find that you are embarrassed by the severity of God's wrath? Do you ever give any kind of attention 
to pondering or considering or weighing the reality of God's holy anger? Or are we like many people who clearly are uncomfortable with it and we do our best to ignore it and somehow downplay it and minimize it and somehow uh, try to steer clear of its, of its widespread and very sobering teaching. Well, this morning we're going to continue on because it not only has been revealed clearly in scriptures and has been revealed in terms of its expressed and portrayal in scripture, but I want to secondly now consider the righteous wrath of God reveals God's perfection. Now that statement alone is going to cause many people to say, oh, please. I'm going to say it again. The righteous wrath of God reveals God's perfection. Now, one of the reasons I understand that many people struggle with the biblical teaching about God's wrath is because they are entertaining false assumptions about God's wrath. There are many people who draw erroneous conclusions about what God's anger entails because they have somehow gleaned experiences in human life with various expressions of human anger, and they have now projected that onto God, and therefore many people say, falsely and erroneously, that God's anger is arbitrary. That is, that it is random in its response. It is oftentimes uh, expressed with no reason at all. So there's one thought that some people say God's anger is arbitrary. They also say that God's anger is uninhibited. That is, there is no limiting to it. It just, it is vented all of a sudden. But the reality is, when you look carefully at Scripture, God's anger is actually controlled and it is principled. say, what do you mean by that? Well, let me see if I can express that to you and unpack that a little more. Some people view God's wrath through the lens of, as I said, human anger, which tends to be characterized by spasmodic outbursts of a person who's seeking revenge. It's all about themselves and how they are so mad and angry that something happened to them, they're going to seek revenge against this other person. But God is free from personal animosity and vindictiveness. And rather than assuming that God carries out retaliation for an offense, we need to bear in mind a more accurate understanding of what God's wrath really is. Again, I go back to a quote by A.W. Pink. I believe it's in your notes. He defines God's anger and divine anger as the eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Now, that's a helpful definition because he's rooting God's response in anger to God's righteousness, God's holiness. And when viewed in this light, God's anger is absolutely pure. It is uncontaminated by those elements which render human anger sinful. Again, J.I. Packer has a very helpful chapter in his book, Knowing God, and I quote from that. He says also, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious. That is, it is suddenly going to change uh, or is unpredictable. God's anger is not unpredictable in that sense. Uh, it is self Some people claim that the Bible... Uh, sorry, let me back up. God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, uh, irritable, 
morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And Packer goes on to say that all of God's wrath is judicial. That is, it is the righteous judge administering justice. So that when we read of God's anger, we're reading of a righteous judge who is acting out of his righteousness to bring about true justice. And actually, if you think about it, to make a further clarification, the word used in the New Testament for divine wrath is not so much the word that speaks of a flaring up of passion, which is soon over like a, a, like a volcano that just sort of all of a sudden erupts. The word used in the New Testament is a word that means a strong and settled opposition to all that's evil. Now, many years ago, my children saw, I'm sure, numerous examples of my anger expressed in ways that I look back with great regret. And one time we've talked about this numerous times, which is painful but important to hear. They would describe a time when we were driving in a car on vacation. We had a station wagon at the time, so we're all sitting very close together. And as we're traveling as a family, we always had long distances to travel in order to go see our family. And so the kids at times, of course, would annoy each, annoy each other. And since they were seated in close proximity, those moments, obviously, of irritation would obviously, over time, escalate inevitably into some bigger, bigger issue. And rather than pulling the car over at some rest stop or pulling off the car at the next exit, I would, unannounced, after a period of time, I would reach my limit and I would take my right hand and I'm holding the steering wheel and back with the hand go, looking for a leg to grab, <laughs> looking for some part of a body that I can just sort of latch onto to let them know I don't like what's happening back there. So they would describe the fact that this big hand would come back, reaching for them. And here, of course, they are trying to somehow avoid this big hand, looking for them. And I realized oftentimes that big hand was really motivated because I was irritated that they were going to slow this trip down or make it into a miserable time for me rather than being concerned about them and what they really are expressing and the kind of issues that they needed to deal with in their hearts. So rather than realizing that my anger was a pure anger that really was for the best interest of them, my anger oftentimes was evoked because it was an inconvenience to me as to what was happening in the car at that moment. And my kids didn't, Lord, didn't end up being respect me for my great standards of, of righteousness and justice. My kids were what? They were afraid of me when that hand would go back there. I think oftentimes that's how many of us tend to project onto God experiences we've had. And I, I must say, and I need to back up here and say, I acknowledge that there are many people who have been brutalized and expressions of wrong and evil and wicked human anger. I understand that. We are not talking about that this morning. We are talking about that which is revealed in the Scriptures. And J.I. Packer, again, helpfully offers important premise that God's wrath, when you read about God's wrath in the Scriptures, you must understand that it is something which people choose for themselves. Now, if you're like me, you say, wait a minute, I'm going to scratch my head on that one. Choose for themselves. 
Nobody would choose that. Well, look at John 3, verse 18. John 3, 18 says this. It says the decisive act of judgment upon the lost is a judgment which people pass upon themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. This is what it says, 3.18. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What does God in His wrath In his wrath, it's to lead people into the full implications of the choices that they've made. That's why God responds in his anger is that he's saying, well, in light of the fact that you've made this choice, then this is the choice you have come upon yourself. You've chosen to reject the light. You've chosen to ignore the clear directives that come in your conscience and in the word of God. Now, to every person this morning, who is somewhat ashamed of God's wrath. If you're here this morning and you say, well, I would prefer to overlook God's wrath. I really don't want to draw attention to it. I want to downplay it. I want to keep it in the background. I want to pose several questions to you. This is under the premise now of the the wrath of God revealed shows the perfection of God. If you remove from the God of the Bible His wrath, have you Placed, have you not placed a blemish on his character? Isn't indifference to sin a moral blemish? Can a holy God not respond in holy wrath to everything that is unholy? How could a God who is the sum of all excellence look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice? And how could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could the God who delights in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? God is actively and diametrically opposed to evil in every shape and form. And I would say to you, that is one of the perfections of God. If he didn't, he would not be a God worth worshiping. Just as we would object to a human judge, who, for example, let's say recently the judge in Pennsylvania that rendered a decision recently, wouldn't we object to a judge if, I'm saying if now, If a judge had said, he comes and he's going to accommodate both parties. He's not here to render justice. He's just to make sure both parties feel good about what happens so they can leave. Suppose a judge were to act in that kind of mentality, that kind of mindset, and render his decision at the trial in which a coach from Penn State sexually abused multiple boys over multiple years, and the judge says, no, I'm just here to try to make sure we just make this as easy for everybody as possible and just move this thing out and let's just go our separate ways. I would suggest to you all of us would find that to be highly offensive, a moral outrage. The same is true if we reject, if we were to somehow suggest that God, the concept of God, who is easy on sin, a God who ignores wickedness, a God who accommodates all wrongdoing, is that not similarly objectionable in our minds? Such a God, I would suggest to you, who tolerates all sin and wickedness, 
is a self-serving idol who is devoid of all majesty, holiness, and hatred of sin. And that brings us to the point where I need to draw this thought this morning, and that is where we get into Christ and the role that Christ plays in dealing with the just and righteous wrath of God. You see, Christ's death on that cross was a death that averted the wrath of God for every believer. You see, God set forth Christ as what the Scriptures call a propitiation. That is, a sacrifice offered to God that placates or completely satisfies the just demands of God's law and appeases His wrath. Now, the first for that, of course, is 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus, he says, is our propitiation for our sins. But I also have a great verse I want us to look at, Romans 5. Just Romans chapter 5, page 1343 in your pew Bible. It's also found in Romans 3, another passage where at the end of that chapter, after he's given an indictment to everybody, that every mouth must be shut, everybody's guilty, we're all sitting under the wrath of God how God then finds a just way to offer sinners a means of justification. And Christ is the key person. When God sought a way to offer forgiveness in a just way, he did so without moral compromise. Look at Romans chapter 5, 5 through 9. Sorry, 8 and 9. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. God demonstrates his own love toward us, And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, that is by his death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. That is the wonderful good news of the gospel. It is the fact that Jesus was willing to take upon himself as the sinless Son of God, the wrath of God the Father, in order that we who deserve the wrath of God might be set free and forgiven. That is amazing grace. And if you look at letter C in your outline, God's wrath was fully and justly satisfied as Jesus endured the full force of God's justice, which you and I deserved. Do you understand now more clearly why Jesus was in such a state of terror when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He knew that that's what he was about to face. He was looking for any way out if possible. Why? Because of the horrors of the wrath of God being put upon him as our substitute in our place. It is indeed remarkable that God himself would find within himself the means whereby he might satisfy his wrath. And Jesus, in drinking every last drop of the cup of God's wrath, frees those of us who come to him and repent and believe upon him. We are then given the promise and assurance that we will never face that wrath someday. That's good news, my friend. That is good news. And that's why the gospel continually talks about salvation. We are saved 
Oftentimes people go, yeah, well, I'm saved. Well, you mean saved from what? If you deny the wrath of God, if you deny that there is eternal damnation, then what are you saved from? Saved from a life of difficulty? That you're saved from physical ailments and, and problems in your body? That you somehow you're saved from having a life that you don't have any significance or meaning? No, he's talking about the fact that you're saved from facing the ultimate consequences, the just consequences of your sin, and that is facing the holy wrath of God. And thank God that Jesus is the only one who is capable and has sufficiently shown us that his death does save those who come to him in repentance and faith. Let's think now of the third point here. I want us to talk about the response that we make. The righteous wrath of God revealed means everyone must respond. I want us to begin, first of all, with those who many of us here, I trust, are believers. I want us to consider, first of all, as we ponder and reflect upon God's anger, that we meditate upon it in such a way that it may someday, that it may over time be duly impressed upon us of God's hatred of sin. It makes no sense to think about and to consider God's holy wrath if it does not somehow draw upon our hearts and minds and conscience the way that we view sin, instead of viewing sin in a light-hearted way, in glossing over sin and its heinousness, and somehow making excuses for all our sins, is that we become quite concerned about the seriousness of sin from God's perspective. It is so serious that Jesus had to suffer the wrath of God so that we might be forgiven. Listen to Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, and ask yourself, How concerned are you about these serious sins? There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. As you think about the wrath of God, you begin to realize the heaviness, the weight, the seriousness of sin. Any sin. Sins of the heart, sins of the mouth, sins of your mind, sins of what you do. It changes the way we view sin because we realize we are offending a holy and righteous God. Secondly, I would say, and again, I would say, uh, the more you ponder the cross, the more that becomes clear to you how heinous sin is. Secondly, I would say, as you meditate upon God's wrath, pray. Pray that your heart would be lifted up in adoration and praise to Christ for having delivered you from the wrath to come. I tell you, there are some great texts of Scripture regarding this one of them is found in first Thessalonians chapter one. First Thessalonians chapter one, perhaps you should find your way there. Because in this text Paul speaks of the reason to be filled with joy and celebrate is because he realizes what's happened in the lives of these Thessalonians and how God's spirit and power in the gospel has changed them from what they used to be, what they used to worship, to now those who are serving and loving and knowing the true God. And he says 
they have turned, verse 10, 9 and 10, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10, that these young Thessalonian believers have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. The Son that God raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. My friend, that is, there is no greater hope. There is no greater word of assurance than those who are waiting for Jesus to come, not to bring damnation, but to bring them the assurance that, he's been, that we've been spared all of that because of Christ and what he paid on that cross. Romans 8.1, Romans 5.1, there are many texts of Scripture that speak to the greatness of having peace with God and having no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Emil Bruner once said, Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. And as another person wrote, another commentator, it is cause for ceaseless worship that believers will never experience the wrath of God. There's no thought of purgatory here. There is the hope of full forgiveness in Jesus Christ, never facing the wrath of God. Thirdly, I would like to suggest in terms of response to the pondering of the wrath of God, if you're a true believer, I would hope and pray that God would work it in our hearts that we would increase our passion and our compassion for the lost and that our zeal and our desire to proclaim the gospel will also increase. Our zeal and desire to proclaim the gospel. When you read the writings of Paul, the apostle, you begin to understand this man who was so passionate about planting churches and sharing the good news of Christ, proclaiming it far and wide, it was clearly the overflow of his heart which was just captured by the love that God showed to him. That he read about in Romans 5.8, a love that showed to demonstrate how much he loved him when he's his enemy, Christ dies for him. And then it's a love that's compelled for those who are still lost, those who are still in their sins. His love for them propelled him on, knowing that they are facing the horrors of eternal damnation. And so Paul says that he serves God with a whole heart. He doesn't go about life every day in a half-hearted way, just, just trying to build his own kingdom. He's passionately giving himself suffering for the gospel. Why? Because of his love for other people and his love for God. He knows, 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls me. A love that says, I'm not just going to ignore people in their plight. I'll warn them and give them proper caution regarding what they face apart from Christ. Many of us need more boldness, don't we? Boldness to speak the truth. Boldness to say, listen, if you're sinful, this is what you're facing. We don't need to hedge the truth. We have to tell people the truth. We need to do so in a proper way, in a biblical way. Let me just draw this to a conclusion as we also acknowledge there may be so those among us this day who do not and have not been able to claim these kinds of words of assurance. Those who have just sat there and said to themselves, Oh, please, let's not go down this road. Well, if you are here today, you have not come to Christ in your faith and repentance. I say to you what John the Baptist preached, flee from the wrath to come. Do not suppose that this message is for somebody else 
Or do not suppose that because you are still living a comfortable life, that somehow you've got to pass from dealing with the inevitable consequences of your sin. Listen carefully to the warning of John chapter 3, verse 36. I read it earlier, I'm going to read it again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. That's not my words. That's what the Scripture says. If you have not been united to Jesus Christ by faith, the Bible warns you it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So therefore, repent of your sin. Stop all of your vain attempts to somehow run away from God. Do, be, do not be deceived. Do not misinterpret God's patience for God's indifference to your sin. The Bible says in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? To repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I can't think of anything more sobering, anything more convicting and dangerous than it is to bank up more and more wrath of God against me or against you if you are what? Stubbornly refusing to turn and repent from your sin and turn to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I need a Savior. My sins and the cost and the payment of those is overwhelmingly awful. I conclude with a compelling words of William Gurnall, a pastor in 1660. He said it then, it was true, it's true today. He says this, Think not, sinners, that you will escape. God's mill goes slow, but grinds small. The more admirable his patience and bounty now, that is when God gives you, his his mercy is shown to you and not giving you his wrath and the justice you deserve right now, he's showing you patience. The more admirable his patience and bounty now, the more dreadful and unsupportable will that fury be which arises out of his abused goodness. Nothing smoother than the sea, yet when stirred into a tempest, nothing rages more. Nothing so sweet as the patience and goodness of God, and nothing so terrible as his wrath when it takes fire. I say again, repent and flee from the wrath to come. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Our holy and just God, we acknowledge and admit and confess how often we have committed the sin of creating an idol in our hearts and minds about what you are really like. And we ask that you would forgive us this day, Lord, for overlooking and downplaying and somehow glossing over your righteous wrath. 
We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you might impress upon us the right response to this sermon today, Lord. For some, there are those who are filled with pride and arrogance, who somehow think they're going to escape this final day. They're somehow going to minimize the seriousness of having to stand before the holy God, the judge who knows all things. Somehow they think they're going to offer you a few token good works or some kind of token ways of offering you something they think will be a payment that will lessen the wrath that they will face. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help them to no longer be deceived. Help them to realize they need to flee from the wrath to come. Help them to turn to Christ. I pray that you would help them to see that Christ is the one who bears wrath upon himself. It is Christ who took upon himself the punishment that we deserved, even when we were enemies against him. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would cause that one who thinks that they somehow their sin is not that serious. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see. It may look calm now on the tempest of their life. But Lord, on the, on the smooth uh, waters of their life, but Lord, help them to see that someday there's going to come a horrendous tempest, a storm of God's wrath. They will not be able to withstand it. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you've come to seek and to save the lost from the hell that we deserve, from the wrath that we have coming to us, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help those of us who have tasted of the wonders of your grace. Lord, help us to daily celebrate the wonders of your full forgiveness and the wonders of Jesus who bore upon himself the righteous wrath that we deserved. Oh, Father, I pray that we might not be trivializing sin, that we might not be toying around with various forms of iniquity and transgressions. Oh, Lord, call us to a holy life. Those who are truly the children of God, help us to be holy like you. Help us to hate sin like you hate it. And help us to have boldness in our witness for Christ, to realize that the reason that we're here is to proclaim Christ and him crucified to a dying, and, a dying world that is facing the damnation of God. Those, oh, Lord, thank you for your moments of mercy you show to us. Thank you that you are slow to anger. Thank you that you are a patient God. You've given us these days to prepare for that ultimate day. And Lord Jesus, we pray as we now gather before your table, even today, would you draw somebody to yourself, Lord, even from those who are here, that they might find in Christ, who drank every last drop of that cup of wrath for us. May we find our life in him, we pray in his name. Amen.